Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Walking the Walk, Talking the Talk. And today's theme is Scotland. But before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to say how brilliant it is to see the Namaste Motherfuckers community growing so fast and furious in 2023. Um, there's rightly been a huge amount of love for the Deborah Meaden episode last week. And welcome and thank you to all our new listeners. We'd really love it if you would take a moment. You can even press pause right now just to rate review and recommend the show that really does make a massive difference to us and it literally takes well not one second but not many seconds right shameless self-promotion over with a heartfelt thank you to you and let's do this back to today's theme scotland in a 2003 poll one third of american visitors to scotland believed that the wild haggis runs free on scottish moors it's against Scottish law to produce a map of the UK which shows the Shetland Isles in a box. According to a survey in 2014, Scottish men are sexier and better lovers than English men. And half of Scotland's countryside is owned by just 450 people. Not all of them sexy. I've got you. Uh, okay. I've got it. it. That's today's guest, Kirsty Walk. After the Scottish Reformation, the lands of the church were divided by the crown into temporary lordships. The act of creating these lordships was known as erection. So people who received them were known as the Lords of Erection. Come on, you don't get stuff like this on Newsnight. Scottish Natural Heritage has stated that Loch Ness Nessie is a rare species subject to conservation rules and if she is found, she must be released back into the loch unharmed. 
In Scotland, farmers used to pour leftover porridge into a porridge drawer at breakfast, where it would dry out, ready to be cut into slices and taken as an on-the-go lunchtime snack. A porridge drawer. I love my porridge. And finally, the word wabbit, yes, rabbit with a W, the word wabbit, is Scottish archaic slang for exhausted and unable to function from tiredness. Mike, the producer, knows that I am a bit wabbit here now because I'm recording this at one in the morning, the night before we release the episode, and I've stumbled over just about every word I've said. So the version you're hearing is not version one. Do you want me to have that funny blurred background or not? Kirsty Walk is a Scottish broadcaster and BBC Newsnight's longest serving presenter, having joined the programme in 1993. During her career, she has covered everything from the Lockerbie disaster in 1988 to the Queen's funeral last year. Her interview with Margaret Thatcher in 1990 made the headlines, and she has since interviewed everyone from Madonna to Vivian Westwood. Her 2017 BBC documentary, Let's Talk About the Menopause, was pivotal in changing the conversation around the subject. And her other notable TV appearances include Have I Got News For You, Sewing Bee, the final of Celebrity Masterchef, and being crowned top celebrity baker on the Great British Bake Off for comic relief. She's written two best-selling novels with a third in the works and has been listed as one of the 50 best-dressed over 50s by The Guardian. Kirsty and I talked about the island of Arran, pregnancy, wild weeing, sleeper trains, snoring, fears, shopping, empty nest, menopause, novel writing, love language, cocktails, female role models and the Queen's funeral. But I started by asking her about that famous Margaret Thatcher interview. I was asked to interview Margaret Thatcher by my bosses at the BBC. Um, unbeknownst to her, I was going to interview her. Uh, she was coming to Scotland. She was trying to make a amends, trying to create a better impression in Scotland. She said she would give the BBC an interview, uh, but unbeknownst to her, it was me. So she objected to that, didn't want to do it, didn't want to be interviewed by a woman. The BBC stuck to its guns. But the, the added complication for me was that um, I'm a big homework freak if I'm doing an interview, but I also, also my... Husband, myself, and my doctor were the only ones that knew I was pregnant with Caitlin. So I wasn't going to get myself all hit up. Um, so I was very calm when I approached the interview, quite forensic, I hope, because I only had the half hour, there was no editing. And she tried to sort of divert me in makeup by very awkwardly starting talking about women and feminism as if I was suddenly going to branch off from everything I was going to talk about. And I said, no, no, this is not going to happen. So it was a bit testy. But it was a good one to do, I think. Seems such a long time ago. So you were in your 30s when you did that? I was in my 30s when I did yeah. that. Yeah, I mean... You looked yeah. about 18, but you were in your... I was like, God, she's amazing. And you were amazing. <laughs> so you were you were young, but not baby, baby young. But... No, I was young and I'd been a producer and I was kind of quite hardcore in terms of, you know, being a news and current affairs producer, so... I, and I worked with the great, I worked with the political editor, I worked, you know, we we brainstormed that interview with a couple of producers and the political editor. So it was a team effort as most of the best things that the BBC are. So it was a team effort, but you're the one sitting in front of the then Prime Minister 
sucking it to her. And I have to say, I mean, you will, you know, you, you've said you're an interrupter sometimes, but it was good that you were an interrupter on occasion in that interview. But the um, the look in her eye versus how she was trying to convey herself was a masterclass in people watching. Um, I could watch it 17 more times and still pick up <laughs> bits of nuance. Well, I mean, the thing was, the thing was, I was determined in a way I wasn't going to look at her all the time in case she, that gave her the opportunity to try and interrupt. Yes, so, or get uh, in your head. She could have with those. Or get, or get yeah. in my head. But um, I don't know. I think by then she knew she was on her way down, you know, from having been a kind of stellar Prime Minister, whatever your politics are, she was pretty stellar in what she actually achieved for her brand. Uh, but I think she was on her way down then and she was tripped up by not knowing what was going on in the 1922 committee. Yes, she was. And that was beautiful. Anyone who hasn't, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but anyone who hasn't seen it, it's it may be a long time ago, but a masterclass in all things. <laughs> well- well, well, funnily enough, the thing was, it it had this, it had this question was a kind of, which I call a kind of one-two, which is, it doesn't work either way, her answer for the second question, which was, do you understand why you are so unpopular in Scotland, which is either going to be, yes, I do, and I'm going, well, why haven't you done something proper about it, or no, I don't, why don't you? So we gamed that one quite a bit. And how do you then, when you're interviewing people, and this is your bread and butter, so for you it may feel like falling off a log, but watching it, no, it never I, does. It never does. Okay, well that's that's a relief. So so underneath <laughs> the pro exterior uh, is the beating heart of someone who doesn't always. But did did you? So when you're so you're you're there, you're experienced as a journalist. This is a high stakes interview for you. Yeah. And you went straight in, socking it to her with a tricky old uh provoke provocative question how does it feel then for you at that at that moment in time it 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 feels like i've started a motor in the sense that i'm into it and you've always got to be prepared to go entirely off piece from what you're asking because you have to listen to what she's saying uh but but i but i had a kind of flow to it and you know there were certain things we absolutely had to hit and yeah it you know it was it was lucky for me that I had such good people to talk to me about it. And, you know, and I love being in the studio. I love the theatre of the studio. You know, I, you know, when it's a big event or, you know, it's like a big interview to happen or it's like the election or something, I go into the studio and I kind of sit in my own for a bit and just become acclimatised the studio because it's kind of my space. And this was before you'd become a Newsnight presenter. So it was a really big deal yeah. to do that interview yeah, I think at that point at that point I was doing the late show which obviously is, it was this wonderful fantastic nightly cultural show gosh R.I.P uh and um and I was doing politics in Scotland I was doing a political show in Scotland so I was doing both which is what I've always tried to do because you know I'm, I'm quite eclectic and that kind of stuff you know I I love arts I love music I love interiors you know as well as how much I love news and current affairs and that last bit, this is the last thing I'll ask you about Margaret Thatcher, because God knows she got enough airtime in her life. But that last bit, I always wonder what people talk about when the credits are rolling. And so you had that bit of probably one minute of paper shuffling, pretending to chat or genuinely chatting. Uh, but I did wonder after the atmosphere, there must have genuinely been between you, how that one minute of credits rolling, having to sit opposite each other was bad because <laughs> as soon as the credits stopped rolling she left the chair we went to the wings of the studio she just went for me for interrupting her and you know it 
it was, I just stood my ground, but it, shall we say, it was less than cordial. Yes, one sense that might. See, nowadays they'd have the spin-off bit afterwards and that'd be the bit. That oh, yeah, the... yeah, the briefing room, <laughs> the spin room, and the spin room of the spin room of the spin room. <laughs> That's the bit people don't realise, though, isn't it, is that you end up having a real sparring match with somebody or you'll be on a panel on the radio or on telly, but you're all in a room beforehand and then you all have to go back to the room yes, afterwards. Yeah. Um, and there's no cab that can be called quickly enough sometimes on those occasions. So you did, um, I was also thinking of you when Vivian Westwood died because you did yeah. that brilliant interview with Vivian Westwood, I guess best part of 20 years ago now. Yeah, it was at a big, it was at a big V&A show. And honestly, she's just such a kind of incredible, she's like a Catherine wheel. And to be honest, that interview was pretty tricky because Vivian didn't quite grasp the idea that we were actually recording the interview. So she was kind of wandering off camera and going everywhere. And, you know, but that just added to the kind of joy of her kind of, you know, I can remember a few years ago, you know, um, I interviewed at the Cheltenham Book Festival, like there's 2000 people waiting to see Vivian Westwood. I mean, they were so excited. Anyway, we were just about to come on stage, halls packed. She's wearing quite a complicated outfit and she goes, I need to go for a wee. I'm going, Vivian, it's in a porter cabin about, I mean, half a mile away. She said, I've got to go for a wee. And so literally we were about to walk up the stairs, she turned left for her wee. And I had to go on the stage, talk to people at Vivian Westwood. So <laughs> finally she comes back, you know. But I mean, you know, she changed things radically. What, you know, she gave people freedom. She gave permission to, to dress as ever they wanted to dress, you know. I, you know, she, and then, of course, I, you know, I, I loved her, um, just her sweaters that she did with Smedley's with the logo. And and I wear a lot of that on Newsnight, actually. I wear kind of, I love her, I, I mean, I don't necessarily um, wear the twin set, but I do wear a lot of her jumpers on Newsnight because I just think she was just so cool. And I have bits and pieces of her tartan stuff as well. Well, she d I found it so hard to... And by the way, I'm surprised Vivian Westwood didn't just sort of hoik her bustle up and have a piss around the back of the tent because that's the sort of person I would have thought. I, I'm very impressed she bothered to get as far as a porter cabin because God knows we've all been in an emergency <laughs> oh, outdoor we've environment. We've all been in an emergency outdoor environment. Of course we have. And wild We've peeing. all stopped the car at the side of the road, <laughs> getting behind a bush if we can, embarrassing our children. Okay, I've just got to go. I've just got to... Mom, I can't forget, look, Mum, just wait. I'm like, no, look, there's nobody here. We're in the the dunes there's nobody here and she's like oh god that's a reason never to be recognized in my case because at least if someone saw my bum around the back of my mini cooper it wouldn't matter Kirsty walks <laughs> bum around the back of a mini cooper you're suddenly all over the tabloid so that's not what anybody it's not the brand it's not brand Kirsty. but um i'm pleased to know that and it, yeah, it was really there were some people when they died i know it's like wild peeing isn't it <laughs> wild, of wild swimming yeah I just do a bit of wild peeing I remember watching um, somebody. There was a there was a film we uh, a show we had when I was working um, for Spike TV, and it was a very sort of blokey uh, series called My Big Redneck Wedding. And in one of the episodes, somebody proposed to his prospective wife by peeing "Marry Me" in the snow. So there you go. How romantic! And she said yes. So um, did anyway, she pee yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's harder for a woman, isn't it? She really thought she was peeing yes. <laughs> it looked more like a sort of, you know, an impressionist painting. Yeah. Um, but I know this is the most erudite interview you'll ever have been asked to do, Kirsty. So uh, <laughs> strap in. Um, so. When, and, and you so the, the news it's kind of hard for us to imagine 
now, 20 years on, that it, obviously it was a really big deal when there was an all-female Newsnight team, not be, not before time, but not it was still, still newsworthy, um, yeah. even when it happened. But for you in 1993, going into that chair, how was that? Because you're the longest serving Newsnight presenter, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I was actually asked to go, there's another sort of birth story, bizarrely. I was actually asked by the then editor, Tim Gardham, um, the previous year to join Newsnight. And he became the only person apart from my husband that knew I was pregnant with my second child. And I said, you know what, I really, I mean, I could have gone, but I really didn't want to go to Newsnight because obviously I was commuting um, through all the stages of pregnancy with James. Because with Caitlin, I presented the new, uh, the late show till I was 35 or six weeks pregnant, just wearing a big coat on a flight up and down to Scotland, praying I wouldn't actually get stuck in Scot in London in labour. And um, I didn't really want to do all that again with James. So I said, look, I'd love to do Newsnight, but I'm just telling you that I'm pregnant. James is due in March. Um, and then lo and behold, um, after James was born, he came back and said, now will you come? James was born in the March and I went in the October. Wow. And you've always based yourself in Scotland, Scotland. but commuted back and forth to London. Yeah. yeah. And so you're no, no stranger to the sleeper train. Oh, I was on it last night. And it was, honestly, it was Burns night last night. And there was a piper <laughs> at Euston piping us onto the sleeper. As long as How they much? didn't get onto the sleeper. I said he might have been a she. As long as Could the piper, she? the it they didn't piper. get onto the sleeper. The they didn't get onto the sleeper, no. And I absolutely, because I hadn't had time to eat at my desk last night at Newsnight, I did have haggis, leaps and tatties and a whiskey before I went to bed. I'm thinking that could be a windy combination on the sleeper and you don't want that. <laughs> You don't share with anyone, though. That's true. Kelly, you're not, you're not, you're not, you you're are not some, on your own. It's not like being in kind of business class a on couchette. a plane. It was also you, like yeah. being in a couchette with six people <laughs> in France and an old train. <laughs> well, I'd like to think it's more like that. I'd be worried about that or snoring or any oh, of no, those I mean, things. Look, snoring is a real problem. And my, you might notice that this nostril is kind of slightly bent in. I didn't That's like to because... mention it. I thought that was 90s <laughs> television. The reason some people's nostrils <laughs> are deformed. But it's Different. not that, is it? It's not Bolivian marching powder, no. no. It is the fact that this is a broken nose. We see in front of us a broken nose. And it was broken by James headbutting me when I was reading him a story. But it had been broken years before when the shelf dropped on it. This is when he was a little baby, not when he was a teenager having a row no, with you. Yes. No, 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 nor was he on my knee when he was a teenager being read no. a story. You never know. <laughs> you never know. So, yes, this, um, what was the point of that story? It's snoring. It's snoring, exactly. I worry about snoring on the I worry about, and, and they can't fix my nose. They tried to move it across my face with an anaesthetic once, which was the sort of thing that ever happened to try and straighten it up, but they didn't. So I, I, I do know I snore. And honestly, one of my greatest fears, I have some great fears, but one of my greatest fears is falling asleep on a plane, head back, mouth open, snoring like a freight train. And it's hard to forego that. I mean, if you does that you mean don't you, won't know. Do, you won't go to Australia because of that? I mean, you must do long haul flights. I'm just back from two very, very long haul flights, back to back. Literally, I do do long haul flights. But I mean, and I actually have in the past said to the air steward or stewardess, they, I have said... Please, I'm snowing. Will you just wake me? Because it's so embarrassing. It is embarrassing, especially when people know who you are. If I did it, they'd be like random ginger woman snoring. If you did it, 
everyone, but everyone would be taping it. You'd become a TikTok <laughs> sensation. The Kirsty walks. Where's well, my only chance of being a TikTok sensation? <laughs> well, I don't know. I just it. got on it, Kirsty. You'd be surprised what women of a certain life phase can achieve on TikTok. Yeah, I think they're Thanks, fascinated. Let's try that. They're fascinated. I think you've probably got um, better things to do with your life um, than get on TikTok. What are your other fears? Then you said I've got lots. I've got a few fears. One of them's falling asleep snoring. One of them is falling asleep snoring. The other is people coming up the stairs closely behind me. I hate that. Mm. And another one, I don't know if it's, you you um, connect with this at all. I don't like being in a shop when it's about to close. Now that's an interesting one. Isn't What's that, that weird? About? I have no idea. I used to work in shops when I was a teenager. I don't know what it's about. I really don't like being in a shop at the end of the day when it's almost empty. Do you think that you might get shut in and it'll turn into a sort of Stephen King novel and you, you stuck in the back? Yes, of either that waitress. or I'm terrified it'll turn into supermarket sweep and then I won't be able to afford every single beautiful piece of designer clothing I bought. Yes. I don't know, but there's just something about it I don't like. I like the fact that you went, I went straight to I'm in the back of Aldi and I'll get stuck around the stacking crate and you're like, designer clothes. It's because <laughs> I don't want to buy it. We were in different shops in our minds then, Kirsty. Look, I worked in C&A. <laughs> this is a teenager, one of my shops I worked in. Oh, I used to love their, I used to love their teen Bargain fashion. basement. Oh, Bargain basement. Good. I got my first uh, burgundy corduroy knickerbockers in Did the you? 80s from CNA. Yeah. But there were some great old shops when I think about it. I can remember getting shoes that were called Metro New York shoes or something. In the late 70s, early 80s, in Saxon and Kilmarnock. We were navy patent with white, uh, white, um, a kind of white rim around them. They were very cool. You've come alive in a way you only came alive talking about shoes. Vivian Westwood. Oh, I know. And you have every right to come alive about Vivian Westwood and shoes because you've, you're the winner of many accolades and prestigious awards, but none more impressive than one of the 50 best dressed over 50s as voted for wow. in The Guardian. I mean, that's that's cool. I'm I a tag hag. I my hat to you. I'm a bit of a tag hag. I try not to be. I'm being more mindful about what I'm buying. But sometimes, sometimes you just get carried away. I do remember we've only worked together once and you presented a, a conference that I was um, doing the sort of editorial on for, for the Producers Alliance. Um, and I do remember your clothes, your shoes. I was like, oh my goodness, this is how, this is how I want to dress. It was a whole other league of beautiful. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I this is, I love this. this is, I, I really, this is like, um, this is the Pompiers of Paris, like the fire brigades, but yeah. it's a lovely woman who used to be the head designer at Sonia Reichel, who started this Scottish French brand called La Fetiche. And she, the, the, the woolens are phenomenal. Well, the thing to do is to wait for the sale. After that plug, I, I, I'm I, not allowed I, to get free shit. Of course, you've got to be impartial yeah. about free shit. I've got to be partial about free shit. Oh, can't you even get it on the quiet? And you know, no, but you know, I wait for sales, sample sales, all sorts of things. Sample yeah. sales are fun. And do you um? So obviously, with the sort of whole emphasis on us upcycling and going mm. vintage rather mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. or pre-loved, as I believe pre-loved. Are you big into pre pre-loved? Yes. Uh, the other week, I wore my aunt's going away outfit from 1957 on Newsnight. Oh, my goodness. I and I wear I some of my mother's clothes as well. Wow. I, I mean, I just love I love that any... connection. But from the 50s, they had, like, I remember... Um, seeing, it was New Look. They were and tiny waist. I remember um, someone, I, I was lucky enough to see Marilyn Monroe's famous, you know, skirt out dress for mm. real. 
and they opened the cabinet. I didn't obviously wasn't allowed to touch it, but I got within spitting distance of it, but was careful not to spit. And I just thought, I don't think the waist of that dress would fit on my thigh. That's what I was struck. But you by. see, I think the the, the, the illusion of a, a kind of jacket pit that goes in and out makes your face, waist seem smaller. The truth is, I can get into. I, I, I'll correct myself. I wore the jacket, mm-hmm. which was very, which was new look. The straight skirt. Mm, I don't remember my aunt being that thin, but then I was only three when she got married. Yeah, that's an impressive look. Namaste, motherfuckers. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. You talked about your mum and lots of people, well, everyone will know that you're also an author. And I was struck when I heard you talking about on the brilliant Fortunately podcast. R.I.P. Fortunately, I love R.I.P. Those girls. I mean, I thank goodness they've gone on to still be broadcasting, but I did love that podcast. And I, anyone who hasn't heard it, I loved your chat with them, unfortunately. But on that, you talked about getting into writing when mm-hmm. space was freed up mm-hmm. by your children being at university and your mother having died and yeah. the time you would spend with those mm-hmm. respective generations mm-hmm. having moved I, into a yeah. different phase. Not everybody, when they go through an empty nest bereavement cycle, would manage to knock out a novel. I just got a puppy and cried a lot. So um, how, how did that come about? Because your first novel was nearly 10 years ago now. Yeah, and I'm I'm on my third just now, and it's meant to be in by the end of March. So I'm writing pretty hard at the moment. Um, because I'd always wanted to write, and it was a way of connecting particularly with um, both, funnily enough, both Aaron, which is a place that's always been a great family place for me and also our kids and everything I love Aaron the island of Aaron which is very close to Glasgow 40 minutes to the boat but it's also a way of connecting with mum in a way because there were certain things in that book certain the atmosphere certain things my mother was not a very demonstrative mother of that generation that she, she loved me deeply I, I, I do know that but there were lots of practical things that, you know, she helped me do and helped me grow up. And then there was a character, the mother in the book actually has some of those characteristics. It's not my mother in any way, as these things never are. But it allowed me to, it allowed me to explore. And actually, something that I never even had heard of until Caitlin was talking to me about it recently, was exploring different love language. And I never even heard that. It's such an interesting idea, love language. Yeah. And I like it because it allows for all sorts of different expressions um, of love. And I and I think that's the way we all are. You know, whether it's whether it's cooking something for somebody or upcycling something and remaking it for somebody, or just practically telling you how to do things, showing you how to do things, which is what mom did. And also, mum was kind of Martha Stewart before her time without the jail sentence, right enough. But it was all that kind of, I can all, I can really remember in, in the 1970s, I was at school and everybody in the early 70s had a G-plan bedroom unit, which had like a two chest of drawers and a gap in the middle. So you could sit and, you know, da, da, da. And I was wanging on about wanting one of these. And there was never, ever, ever a question of me getting one. It just was never going to happen. But I came home from school one day and mum had dismantled an old 
chest of drawers and dressing table set, she had bought a huge big piece of wood, which was to be the counter. And she'd taken the top kind of Edwardian stuff off one of them, painted it. And then I had my unit. Wow. She'd have had her own TV show nowadays, wouldn't she? She would have been, honestly, she would have been so brilliant at that because she was so brilliant at, you know, painting furniture. We would go to auctions together long before it was fashionable. I mean, I use lots of old furniture and I'm actually just building a house just now. And I'm going to do that. You're building a house just now. Well, not personally. I was like, well, is there any end to this woman's talent? No, 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 so no, no. A house no, no. is being I, no, built. A house being built, for which uh, um, on Aaron, and it will be have lots of wonderful things that I have painted, bits of furniture from the past as well as getting stuff now, and you know reusing. I mean, the other thing I do, my purchasing. You know, we went. You know, years ago we got married and we got crystal glasses. I'm like, oh, crystal glasses. I actually really love crystal wine glasses, right? But now. I just get them from charity shops. I don't care if they get broken because they're, they're charity shops are flooded with crystal glasses. So you can get lovely whiskey tumblers, champagne glasses, cocktail glasses. And so I've got a whole selection of them. You get them for like 10p each. That's what I call upcycling and being able to drink at the same time. There you go. And that is a winning, that, that's your life. And that combination. Coverage, to be honest. I mean, honestly, <laughs> we, were in, uh, we were in Puerto Rico. I'm not been a huge cocktail person, but we we're in Puerto Rico. Um, a kind of final hurrah of a family holiday that was delayed a year. Uh, we went to the 27th of December for 10 days. And there's this great bar called La Factoria, which is one of the best 50 bars in the world. And I had cocktails in there. Unbelievable. I am now, I am now in my dotage. Cocktail drinker. I love a cocktail. And you've got your own whiskey rumour, has it? We have our own whiskey, which I love. And that's from Aaron. Um, so, uh, Yeah. That um, cocktail's great. Definitely great. And cocktails and crystal glasses, great. And charity shopping. My daughter and I live in Kentish Town and there were, I think, seven or eight charity shops on the main drag. Yeah. And I was going to say her idea of a great day out with me is doing that. Her idea of a great day out would be going to Babington House, but we don't do that. So we pretend, that. but I do I do love a charity shop. And yeah. going back to your um, to your books, so, well, one of the things I thought, are you not worried loads of people are going to go to Aaron now that you've written these books and it will become less quiet and idyllic? Well, funnily because... enough, yeah, well, funnily enough, people did go to Aaron and follow the trail because there are lots of things in the book. Everything in the book is still there. I mean, the waterfall. Aaron's the, one of the biggest characters in the book. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. And so I love it when people go. I love, you know, it's a mixture. You're absolutely right. I say, when oh, you must go to Aaron. It's fantastic. And then you go. How many are going to Aaron exactly? You'll be hated if you put Aaron too much. No, but I mean, Aaron needs tourism, you know, yes. and it's such a beautiful island. It's just, it's just, you get on that Carmack ferry, if it sails, you get on that Carmack ferry, you get a fried egg roll and a cup of coffee, and that is heaven. That is me on my way. I go from like fifth gear down to first gear. Fried egg roll and a cup of coffee. Oh, fried egg roll is one of my things. I just love a fried egg roll. Who doesn't? I very much speak in my language. I'm a really cheap date. And when you, did you write the book in Aaron? Did most of it or were you writing it? Writing anywhere. Okay. And funnily enough, I had two different experiences of that whole idea because, you know, as a, a, a new writer, you're thinking, God, what do, I, what do I do here? And I interviewed Jonathan Franzen. And Jonathan Franzen is a writer. Um, go at that point, was going into tiny space in Manhattan, like with padded walls practically to block out sound. He wouldn't be interrupted for hours and he would just sit there in this tiny cell writing away. And I thought, was that, you have to do that? Then I interviewed Donna Tartt and I told her the story and I said, where do you write? I write everywhere, I write in the bus. 
Yeah. I write in the new Lawrence City Library, I write in post-its. And again, it was also, um, but after, because I'd interviewed a lot before, but when she wrote The Goldfinch, and I was saying, where'd you get all that, that chemical high stuff information from? And she went, the internet. The internet. The internet. I thought you don't have to experience everything to write a book. I loved that book, but I, I loved, loved that book. Then I loved Little Friend. Yeah, that didn't get so that didn't go down so well, uh, but I loved it. But I thought me the Goldfish was fantastic. And so, right, one of the, I mean, the scenery. Anyone who hasn't read your books, so your first book is the Legacy of Elizabeth Pringle, and your second book, um, which is more recent, right, three yeah. four years ago, yeah. The House by the Lock, and you're incredible at kind of evoking really clear images of the settings the landscape as I say the landscape and the settings are very mm -hmm. much characters in your writing mm -hmm. but the other thing you can't help but notice is um interesting strong female protagonists so mm -hmm. much as I loved the mayor of East Town because uh -huh. I was like yes real women my kind of age doing real things you managed to depict multifaceted women across a range of generations obviously Elizabeth Pringle being uh, yeah. at the tail end of life and showing that old age need not be limiting no but this, no, um, I'm not a dry old stick she says yeah and she is none of us are and we will refuse to be but yes. so that um I mean it's not hard to think um why you would believe in strong female role models given you and your life but um, how is it writing those kind of characters I, I love writing those characters because in the second novel, um, the character of Jean is very, very flawed and troubled, um, but still incredibly, a great vivacious kind of spark, a woman thwarted really by the age in which she was born into. And in a way, Elizabeth Pringle was too, though she was a teacher. My grandmother was a pupil teacher. And being a pupil teacher, she trained to be a pupil. She was a teacher till she was in her 70s, my grandmother. Um, but you 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 show great promise and at school when you become 17, 18, you stay on, you learn to be a teacher at school. So my grandmother on my father's side was a teacher. So I love and I but Miss Pringle, Elizabeth Pringle, was really based on the most wonderful infant mistress I had called Miss Smith, who was really sassy and great. And I remember was I went to school and I was a four-year-old and I just loved her. And she would do this thing where on Friday lunchtimes, Everybody put their desks into the middle of the classroom. She'd put music on, we'd all be banging tambourines, and we'd tear around the classroom as fast as possible. I don't know where she learned that. But it was such an antidote to the rest of the week, and we loved her for it. And so, and I just wanted to pay tribute to people like her. And Elizabeth Ringer was a wonderful teacher, and much more besides. And it wasn't, and, and has this extraordinary relationship, platonic, but kind of suggestive. Uh, with a much younger Buddhist monk, and it, and I just I just love I love I love women being quite complex, and and um, indeed in my new novel uh, Janet uh, Campbell, who is the protagonist in my new novel, which is set in Glasgow, starting in the eighteen eighties, is very complex as well. And when is that? What's that novel called? And when is it going to be out? So we can At the moment, the working title is Kirk Lee. Mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping to hand in a reasonable draft by Easter, okay. and it's meant to be out next year. So I guess you're just doing the podcast with me because it's either that or clean the toilet to pretend you've not got time to write, right? Honestly, displacement activity, oh. displacement activity. But when I get into it, it's almost transcendental. When I get into it, I don't really want to stop writing because it's in a completely different space in my head. 
But it's just getting into it. You know, I sort of notice things that I haven't done for a very long time. Yes. How about yeah. you? What yeah, do you do? Under, what's your, under the what's your I, displacement activity? Well, anything going. I mean, I walk in the dog, suddenly the dishwasher hasn't been uh, cleaned, salt hasn't been replaced. I'll find things everywhere. Um, and then like what, what, what makes me do things is deadlines, like you've got a deadline. But luckily with comedy and with the speaking that I do, the deadlines are hard and they are real. And if someone says, as you know, you've got to be on stage at 10 past nine, ready to talk for 40 minutes, that's non-negotiable. And seeing that in the diary does get me to get my head yeah, out from you do under need the a deadline. table. And it's, yeah. I, I need a deadline, which is why in the pandemic, some comics were knocking out their best material. And I uh, knocked out <laughs> about three very lukewarm gags that I did on the odd Zoom gig. So it wasn't good for me. Um, but when you, uh, you, you've been obviously through your characters and your novels, uh, and we will await your next one eagerly. Um, you've also shone a light on the menopause so you did yeah. that fantastic documentary everyone thinks it's all about Davina but you were there <laughs> first Kirsten. I mean to be fair to Davina she credits that she does but you know it was a hard slog because the BBC didn't want that for a very long time they were really scared of the menopause I cannot tell you and I it wasn't my idea it was a wonderful producer called Mae Miller who came to me and said Kirsty, I am desperately trying to get this away and I cannot get it away and she knew that I had a um, hysterectomy when I was 46 and so early in fact and what happened to me afterwards. So she said, look, if you would tell your story, uh, th that might go, well, it went like that. And it was a lovely um, commissioning editor, head of BBC uh, in Scotland called Ewan Angus who got it away. Uh, and then it went to network. And then I actually, Mariella did one very soon after, which had strange, but anyway, I then did this and I wanted humor in it. I wanted, Les Dawson, I wanted Mrs. Brown's boys, I wanted all the tropes, I wanted the shit that was happening to women, I wanted all that. And um, that's what happened. And so um, I hope it did make a difference. I do know it made a difference because one of the best things that ever happened was I literally was in the back of a taxi in Glasgow. And the guy said, you, my wife and I were having an absolutely terrible time. And I really, we thought it was the end of the road and she watched your documentary and it was like, Oh my God, there's a light bulb moment. She's going through the menopause. And she said, and he said, well, fine now, because she she understood and we understood and I understood and we sorted it. We don't, we don't sort the menopause, but we sorted the relationship around that. And for so many women, they just go to the doctors if they're even lucky to get an appointment and they're putting antidepressants. Ridiculous. A lot of women are getting diagnosed as being bipolar um, in oh, their early fifties, and it seems to be a combination of misdiagnosis because it's menopause, or the fact that women are so good at masking that they can do that until they get to the point where the walls fall down and they can't mask it. So a combination of those two things. I think also, you know, I I did a roundtable with women in, in the documentary, and although we didn't, she, she didn't desire in any way to be. Um, unidentifiable we didn't name her in terms of her job but I'd be perfectly happy if I told you I mean uh, this woman was head of all nursing service at the Queen Elizabeth this extraordinary hospital which is like the biggest in Europe it's opened in Glasgow and she said you know the red mist came down I could not you know I could not even be around a knife in the kitchen with my husband and family I was just like the red mist came down and that's terrifying for people you know and I just think for women, people just don't recognise. Women go from periods, often hellish, to things like endometriosis, to things like, you know, difficult pregnancies, to things like shooting out kids, or not shooting out kids if they either don't want to or can't, 
to the menopause. But you know what? Periods are non-negotiable. Nothing you can do about that. The menopause is non-negotiable. Nothing you can do about that. And when was society ever worked around the things that women are part of women's lives? And what was the most surprising thing? You went through a hard menopause. A hard um, menopause, having, yeah. yeah. having had a hysterectomy, hysterectomy and then... Full hysterectomy, so ovaries, everything. And that was in your, you know, well, there's no good time to have a hysterectomy. So in your kind of mid-40s. Mm-hmm. And then you went Straight on to HRT. And Straight on to the breast cancer or... scandal, which Yeah, then... but it was, and it was ridiculous because, of course, everybody just went, oh, my God, including me, I don't think I should be taking this anymore. And it wasn't until, I mean, in fact, after I did the menopause program and I went back to my GP and I said, look, I'd really like some help here. Oh, Christy, you know, you're 60, you're a bit old for that. But actually, I went back a couple of years ago and I got um, Estrogel, which just helps me sleep better. Oh, I love that. I'll slap that on everywhere. I sometimes think I'm slapping it on so willy nilly that if any bloke (laughs) comes near me, he'll probably get a bit of a shot of estrogen as well. But it's good. It's hard to get hold of, though, since Brexit. I've been struggling. There was stuff in the press about women. Well, for a while it was impossible. Yeah. But but it's back in, in Scotland you can get it. I think you possibly... Can or England be moved to pay for it? I don't know. Yeah, it's quite hard. There's a lot. There's people doing when when it was all out in the papers, and there's women doing deals on HRT and car parts. I was like, not in car parts, just openly everywhere. Like we're all yeah. we're all Easter gel is really good, and it's the safest transdermal. They say is the best yes. way. I've got a big patch on my ass, but that's a story. Do you? For another, as well, a that's patch funny. Of estrogen. Yeah, really, that's interesting because a friend of mine does that, and she says her skin goes dark, and she's trying to scrub it off, but it must just be the the elastic, to, the stuff to stick it with. It looks very much like a Matisse when you've had a few of them on in a row, but not enough people are looking at my bum to know that. So I take that as a hazard of the job, well worth paying. And they'll have to. I'm hoping I'll go out feet first still on HRT because it totally saves me. But one of the things I loved, I mean, this is going back nearly ten years that you did this documentary. Yeah. And I was really struck at the time. And at the time I was just, I went into an early menopause as well. I've been on HRT a long while. And I was struck by the fact that you did say something that I don't think anyone had really been saying publicly, which was, let's be honest, this doesn't happen at a point when we're going gently into that good night. This happens when we as women are at our peak professionally in our families. And no one had really said that. And I found that massively liberating that you were the, Yes, yeah. who said that? Because also you've got to remember that you know life expectancy is quite different to what it was 60, 70 years ago. So absolutely, your menopause is anything between kind of 42 to 58 kind of thing. I mean, it's massive space. And so it's incredibly important that, um, you know, we make demands. You know, we need menopause policies in all workplaces. And that a lot of that came after that documentary. And we're still yeah, there's been all this stuff you know, about menopause leave this week, hasn't there? And why that's yeah, a challenge. I mean. Absolutely. But after I did the documentary, I remember, I think it was she was head of Scottish Enterprise. She came up to me and said, do you know what, Kirsty, after I watched that documentary, I had a board meeting at Scottish Enterprise. And I said, do you know what? I'm just going to take a minute. You know, and I think, absolutely. Absolutely. I sometimes feel that even, you know, we are in charge, as it were, of providing the next generation. Not obviously entirely on our own yet, but you know, we're in charge. Of, and yet it's like, oh God, she's popping out another baby, she's be off work for six, nine months. I'm not saying that happens to the BBC and I can understand why in small businesses is very hard, but we've just got to remember, we are the people that do this stuff, you know, as well as celebrating it, just recognize 
that things can be tough. It's also getting out of our own way, though, isn't it? Because it's interesting that two of your biggest landmark things, your Thatcher interview and then getting Newsnight were very much dovetailed with your first and then your second pregnancy. And I had my two most meteoric kind of um, career jumps in the media industry, uh, which happened to coincide with both my pregnancies. And there's an element of people saying, you can't do it. We won't take the risk on you. But there's also an element of whether we believe we still can do it and we're entitled to do it. And it's all interlinked, isn't it? But I love the idea about it doesn't have to be redemptive. You don't have to be the best ever Newsnight presenter, although obviously you are. But you don't. (laughs) it's about daring to still have your hat in the ring and knowing that you can be a mother, a lover, um, a a fantastic person at your job. You can be all of those things and they're all allowed to coexist. And and I still think that's a conversation we don't have enough of openly. Yeah. And and what is that phrase... The something is the enemy of the good. What is I can't even remember the phrase. And I think, you know, we all have standards that we try and hold ourselves to all the time. We still think, you know, I mean, I, I would not do an interview. I'm sure you wouldn't either, but I would not do an interview in Newsnight unless, I, you know, I'd done my homework and I was prepared. I mean, it would have to, obviously, the story breaks, you do it. But I mean, a considered interview is my job to do a lot of homework. And yeah. is it your so I always know for these I obviously do my own research and I, I like as you say first of all I wouldn't want anyone on who I wasn't interested in and second of all you think you know the person you've asked on that's why you've asked them and then you dive in and there's all this other amazing stuff that you find out but how much of it do you have to actually do yourself oh. and how much of it's provided in a beautiful pack? I don't have a beautiful pack but I've got brilliant producers who have put together a brief but you know we, we one of the best things and I think one of the most enjoyable things about Newsnight is when we do our briefings, we get in that room and we shape an interview and think about it really hard. And it's funny because I think I remember Peter Mandelson saying one day, you know, when you do an interview with Newsnight that it's been gamed and prepped a lot of the time. And it has because that's, you're there to ask questions on behalf of the audience, not to be self-regarding. You're there to ask questions on behalf of the audience. That's what the license fee says. You know, let's, let's be without fear or favor interviewers where we can actually try and find out not only what's going on, but why it's going on. And answer the questions we're sitting on the sofa at home, not yeah, throwing to things at ask that. And you covered, I mean, even pre the Thatcher that you, you covered, you were one of the first on the ground covering Lockerbie back yeah. in 88. And you were covering the Queen's funeral in Edinburgh, that amazing vision that will that picture we'll all have of the coffin moving through yeah. and you covered that last year and how with with the link you have because I I read somewhere you saying that you bought your first flat was on the Royal Mile is that yeah. right yeah I bought it 268 Canongate yeah I was really have a blue plaque now if it hasn't already <laughs> <laughs> it um I should hang on to it because it's up from the parliament now I got it for I think I bought it in fact I did buy it for 13,000 quid from a BBC wow. radio producer um no, funnily enough, I just was, uh, there's a lovely woman who came to do this, you know, the BBC showing its workings is a big thing now. And they, they tried it out with a, a, a series called um, Behind the Stories, which I just watched yesterday. I'd forgotten I'd even done it. And it was me being interviewed about covering the Queen's funeral. It was only 14, 15 minutes. See, you know, Clive did one, two others. And actually, I've never cried in television before. But actually, I cried in television. And it was because... I mean, I don't emote because I don't believe, and I'd say this. I don't. It's not for me to emote. It's for me to you know help other stories unfold. But when the coffin was brought down 
from the castle and the pipes were playing, that was me. I mean, I find it really difficult. And and what I said on this program, which is on iPlayer, uh, is that it was so strange for me going for that hugely momentous time you know whenever you think about the monarchy it was a hugely momentous time and the pipes were playing and she loved the pipes and the pipes played every morning outside her bedroom window some people think that was hell she'd love that and that went back to Queen Victoria to me then shooting to St Andrews to get organized my daughter's wedding at which the pipes played and it was just it's just so they're so evocative of Scotland and they're so you know and yet you know I can hear the pipes playing we I was in Sri Lanka for news night um week past the hotel we're staying in partly of course this is a, you know this is a kind of colonial overhang you know the piper plays and i just think the, the pipes playing and seeing um the uh, the royal company of archers and being at that coffin because our office was actually in the, the crypt of st giles so at one point i had to come up and do something i realized i was in st giles with the coffin and and nobody else was there and it was just such a hugely affecting moment because I thought, you know, whatever you believe, you know, Elizabeth gave a lifetime of service. Whatever else happened, but uh, and that is quite extraordinary. And what a moment. I mean, it means the next question I'm going to ask you, 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 you almost feel like you've just answered it. But those all these moments you've had and, and the more you and we haven't even talked about, you know, Celebrity MasterChef and Sewing Bee and, you know, the Great British Bake Off and all that. You seem to be able to do everything, Kirsty. No. What can't you do, by the way, just to make us just throw us a bone, something you can't do? Well, I've been asked so many times to go in strictly, but I can't. I had an operation, as you know, I have my hysterectomy and a couple of other ops. And so it's impossible, I'm afraid. So one thing I will never do is strictly. Oh, God, that is devastating because that's got to be. <laughs> I had Deborah Meaden on this earlier this week and, oh, she comes that well, she comes alive all the time. I love her. But, yes, her talking about strictly. So, so yeah, you can't, you can't, can't dance. But I love MasterChef. I learned so much from John Turode. Greg, not so much. John Taroda learned so much from. Um, uh, and he was very generous with that. It was really a tough gig, but, you know, it was, I was so glad I'd done it. What an amazing, and what a lucky family you've got that you're so incredibly talented as a, can Alan cook as well? He can cook, he can cook. I'm more, I've gone back, I've reverted to be more of a kitchen cook, which is about a bit slapdash, which is certainly what I was at the beginning of MasterChef, but I really had honed a degree of skill by the end of MasterChef. Yeah, it was amazing to watch. I mean, if there's one thing, I think my name's in the mix for can't cook, won't cook at the moment. Good. And that's, and that's the, that is the show for me. My age no, obviously said, and you're perfect for it, Kelly, because you can't cook. I said, yes, and you I can. won't cook. <laughs> no, I'm hope, honestly, it's a wonder I've raised two children to adulthood pretty much on my own. The food was not one of the benefits of having uh, me. As I do either of your kids like cooking? Uh, yeah, they're both good cooks. See? Yeah, but their dad, their dad is a good cook, to be fair. And um, and I think also well, there has some, to be something. And they have. There you go. <laughs> no, he's a good man. And they tried to. Um, but they also, I think, it was kind of from young. They were like, if we want decent food, mum, get out of the way. We'll deal with this. So yes, I've generated good cooks through desperation. What would you pick uh, out of your incredible life to date, Kirsty, as your life-changing namaste motherfucking moment oh definitely the moment after a 23-hour labor and diazepam i gave birth to caitlin 
because I kept saying, I don't want an epidural, I don't want an epidural. And it went on and on and on and on. They were doing this big study in Glasgow as to where the diazepam went from the mother to the child. And in the dose that I was going to get, just help me get Caitlin born. And then I was like off my face and I was like on the bed saying, to her, like, the bed's too narrow, don't give me the baby. <laughs> just give me tea and toast. But I do think that unconditional love, that idea that you are actually responsible for this tiny human being. It was, it was amazing because I was an older mum as well. I was 36 when I had Caitlin. And it was just that moment of pure and utter joy. It is that, that is my namaste. It, just, it was just, it was, it was definitely for me. And in fact, funny enough, when James wouldn't come out bloody late and I was uh, given some toes and it was really sore and I was trying to sort of conjure up, just get... I just, it was Caitlin's face I conjured up. I mean, they were born 16 months apart only. It was Caitlin's face I conjured up to give me good endorphins to get me through James's bullet-like labour. That's a lovely, and I, yeah, well, I, it's moving towards something you want to do, isn't it? I, I remember saying when I was in labour with um, my first one, and I was I started labouring at home, thinking this will be a lovely hippie barefoot experience, not realising it hurts like shit and I needed intervention at the end. But anyway, the best laid plans. And as I was sort of swaying around the house listening to George Michael and in early stages of pregnant of um, labour, and I remember saying to my kid's dad, I said, I don't, I don't, I think I'm too selfish for this. He said, what do you mean? I said, I don't really want to share the flat with anyone else. And he was like, it's very late to be feeling that. And I suddenly thought maybe this, but it does all click in, doesn't it? You just it, get just, a rush. it was amazing. It was this yeah. tremendous rush. To be honest, anything on a bit of diazepam feels pretty good. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I appreciate that is a, a, an amazing moment. And what's your favourite joke, Kirsty? Um, I'm so bad at remembering jokes, but I really quite like this one because I think, you know, we, women, you know, we're all feminists, but we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. So basically, it's the first female astronaut to be on the station in Mars. And she radios down, whatever you radio down, and she says, you know, Houston, we have a problem. And uh, comes back, what kind of problem do we have? Well, if you don't know by now what the problem is. <laughs> <laughs> well that's one of our christmas cracker episodes sorted oh i love it i haven't heard that before either <laughs> and you know how to tell a joke which is good it makes my job easier at this part of the podcast <laughs> and if you were to give one bit of life advice to anybody listening what would it be uh something i haven't followed my bit of life advice is sometimes just take a beat don't jump in. Don't follow your first instinct. Just take a beat and have a think. And as a famous interrupter, uh, just take a beat and think, what's the other side of this? Have I got this wrong? You know, I just think, and funnily enough, you know, you talk about namaste, but, you know, I think one thing that I think we could all abide by, which would, it, it, which is, is entirely, it's not entirely altruistic, is I think we all should, not that I'm a Buddhist, but what I think we should all do is follow, uh, you know, the kind of Buddhist rubric of, you know, do one small act of kindness every day. I mean, it could be anything, but just do one small act of kindness every day. And it's just good for you. Namaste, motherfucker. Kirsty Walk, 
and we've put links to everything that we talked about there including where you can find her books in the show notes and that is it for this week thank you so much for listening please do remember as i said at the start to rate review and recommend the podcast so lovely people like you keep on finding us and we will be back in your feed next thursday as always when i will be talking to everyone's favorite agony aunt philippa perry so the parent becomes the doer how can i make you sleep and the child becomes the done to namaste motherfuckers was written and presented by me callie beaton and produced by mike hansen and karusha dami for pod people productions with music by jake yap I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers.